You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hey, 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 this is episode 57 with Heather Ferguson. So before I talk a little bit more about Heather and our topic for today, just a quick reminder to head on over to the show notes or my website to sign up for my mailing list. All my big announcements and updates happen first if you are a part of my mailing list. And of course, because we know that you're here because you want more information and you want to put some more puzzle pieces together and you want to look at things differently, that is a perfect place to continue to do so after the podcast. So I will link to it in show notes. And of course, you can always visit my website, rachelheineman.com and sign up over there. So episode 57, we're talking about the connection between trauma and eating disorders. This is something that is just sort of thrown around. It's, it's maybe something that we all know about. But what Heather and I talk about is under the surface, why are these connected? What is it about trauma that might connect with eating disorders? And I know that we just scratched the surface. This is a course that Heather teaches and it does not only take 45 minutes. It is a semester, uh, but there is so much more of a deeper connection between trauma and eating disorders. And we talk about it, of course, from a psychoanalytic perspective. If I had a challenge to talk about Heather in three minutes or less, I'm not sure if I can do it. Perhaps if I talk really, 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 quickly, because Heather has done a ton. She's actually one of my favorite people in the city. She is faculty and a supervisor at, wait for this, the Institute for Psychoanalytic Study of Subjectivity, the National Institute for Psychotherapies, the Manhattan Institute for Psychoanalysis, and the Certificate Program in Trauma Studies. So <laughs> not even just one place. She also is Kobuk review editor for psychoanalysis, self in context. And she's written about eating disorder treatment from a self psychological, relational, and neurobiological perspective. If any of those words mean anything to you, a lot of her work has been something that has inspired and informed some of the webinars and talks that I've given. She's written papers for decades at this point, academic papers. She's a freaking genius and so awesome. So I'll stop talking about her and just have you talk to her yourself. Thank you so much, Heather, for doing this. I'm very excited to have you. You're one of my favorite eating disorder analysts in New York City. So uh, not to be too flattering, but I'm very excited for this. Before we start, just can you share a little bit about you and your work and some of, you know, we're talking about trauma and eating disorders. So some of that background. Well, terrific. Thank you so much for having me. I am a clinical social worker and a psychoanalyst here in New York City in private practice. And I began my eating disorder journey 35 years ago in college mental health. And it was my first college counseling job after graduating from Columbia University and probably my fifth client, I was only 25 when they were probably 20 or 21, came in with a variety of eating disorder issues, anorexia and bulimia and early sexual childhood trauma. And I thought, wow, I have to learn about this. So I got very mobilized and excited to learn in the community that I was in in Canada, 
it was a very supportive community where we in college mental health gathered and taught each other and learned. And I ran a outpatient support group for for the community at the college campus and then was hired at NYU where I ran all the eating disorder groups for about seven years. So that sort of launched me. But I would say that my clients were my best teachers. <laughs> You're too humble. <laughs> now you teach a lot about trauma, trauma and eating disorders. I mean, this is obviously something you've been doing for decades. So perfect person to talk about the connection between trauma and eating disorders because Sadly, it's really prevalent in this population. Maybe even just to start off in terms of what we mean when we say trauma. You know, some people sometimes people say big T trauma, small T. What do we mean when we use the word? Great question. I would say, as we were speaking earlier, that trauma is in the eye of the beholder. So what might be seemingly not so traumatic could be very traumatic. I think of a client of mine a college kid who had kind of sexual digital play with a male cousin that was over arousing for her and overstimulating when she was 11 to 17 and she felt she had to comply. And for her, that got evoked during COVID as we went online and she went back to her childhood home and it came flashing forward in a very somatic and over arousing way. So on paper, we could say, oh, digital images and sexual play with a cousin online doesn't sound as bad as sexual trauma person to person. But for her, it took on significant meaning and it affected her self-esteem, her sexual development, her gender identity, the whole kit and caboodle. But for others, of course, trauma could mean emotional neglect, cumulative Chronic misattunement can be very damaging. And then, of course, what we think often is the kind of more intense experience of kind of bodily trauma, sexual trauma. So it's a whole gamut. There's maybe the trauma that we think about generally or media sensationalized sort of events, either isolated events or cumulative events. But that's just a sliver of what we mean by trauma. And not everyone responds to these big events in the same way. So a lot of what you're saying is what was the response Mm -hmm. to the trauma in terms of the support system around this person? And how was that sort of managed either immediately or just the general aftermath? And that would potentially determine the level of trauma that we're talking about. Would you say that that's yeah? And that's I think you know, context is everything, right? So something For that sure. happens to an eleven-year-old is different than a seventeen-year-old who has a different kind of language or kind of psychological development. And I think about who was there to witness. Was there a confidant? Was there another sibling or a parent or an aunt and uncle or someone to share the secret with? The secret shame. Does the child go to a parent and then get validation and comfort that it was great that they told? the parent that something bad untoward happened with say a camp counselor or a relative, or is that invalidated? Are they dismissed? Is the person dismissive in a way that said that never happened? And how does that experience then get folded into a secret that needs to be kept? And then the child, if particularly a younger person can feel like, well, that wasn't real. I made that up. Or that must've been my fault because my mother just said that never happened. So the context is everything. Yeah. And what you're saying with the age is definitely really important, depending on the developmental age or level that this kid or adolescent or even adult is at would affect them very, very differently if they're five than if they're 16. Right. 
And also makes me think about what we call more relational trauma. I'm using quotes. Not everyone you can't really see me. I'm in a video, but I'm not in a video. But anyways, talking about sort of cumulative relational trauma in that, you know, we're talking about family member or a parent who was always misattuned or something like that, that that would sort of speak to the, how was this responded to? Well, that is the person who would be the one to respond if there was something off and if they didn't get what they needed from the parent or whoever it is and couldn't go to that person because that is the person who's doing it, that would sort of be a double whammy. Yeah, double whammies, right. Having a safe place to go and having your words or your experience sort of mirrored and welcomed and encouraged. And if that doesn't happen, that's sort of like the emotional surround is collapsed. It's not welcoming. And then that really impacts the developing child. And most often you see you see both sides in our work that we often see someone who has grown up feeling very alone and their trauma is very secret and solitary, a solitary experience that has to be sort of repackaged and sequestered in their memory. Mm -hmm. Which also, you know, we can put this on the back burner just for a couple minutes so that we can circle back, but also gives us a bit of a sneak peek in terms of what the healing process looks like. Because if we can see somebody experiencing very similar experiences to the next person, but having a much more quote traumatic response than the next, and it has everything to do with, did you have a safe place to process it? then, you know, just put that ideas on hold people. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes in terms of what the healing process looks like. But maybe tying some eating disorder stuff in at this point, can you talk about the connection between trauma and eating disorder? Again, it's really sadly so prevalent in this population. And instead of just looking at it as they go together very often, quite sadly, how could they be thought even conceptually as connected? How the eating disorders sort of almost a response to the trauma? Yeah, again, a great question. I would say in my work, you know, not now, not everyone with an eating disorder has, you know, big T trauma. Uh, so <laughs> no. let's be clear. And particularly during COVID, I've seen younger kids who are flirting with disordered eating as a way of regulating and soothing and managing their anxiety and their sense of powerlessness. So I wouldn't go around assuming that everyone's traumatized. However, I have seen eating disorders as a very viable solution, and I'll, I'll, I'll share a case, uh, an alias of a patient. I'll call her Allison, a middle-aged married woman who had early childhood trauma at the hands of a family member. It was a secret. It could not be shared. It wasn't safe in her family surround, and disordered eating became an outlet for her to self-soothe and self-regulate what was so unnameable and unmanageable in her body. She had states of hyperarousal, agitation, that she had no language or way to manage. And that restricting, she talked about, you know, throwing her lunch out on the way to school, not eating as a, a resource, a tool for self-management, which was sort of kind of brilliant and life-saving. But of course, when I saw her, have seen her now, you know, 25 years later, it's a very entrenched and habituated problem. Now we have a different problem to attend to. But if we go back in time, it was like a brilliant solution of a little person who had no safe space to share her traumatic experience, did not have language. So the eating disorder became a, a self-management tool, a self-regulating tool, a strategy to manage states of 
hyperarousal anxiety, to have a sense of efficacy, a sense of control. And most of us that have a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic frame of mind about this, think about eating disorders serving multiple functions. That is, it can both downregulate and soothe the nervous system, and that can be sort of proactive, but it also can be self-harming and self-punishing. And Allison will say, I sometimes don't eat because I want my stomach, I like the feeling of pain, I like to feel hungry. Sometimes that can be almost numbing and soothing and grounding. And other times it almost feels like a self-attack because that's part of also what gets mapped around trauma is I'm bad. I deserve punishment. It's illogical, right? It's sort of how the psyche makes sense of this, that you are the bad one. You somehow induce the traumatic event. So it's really complex. So the eating disorder in a way can be a window into understanding the trauma. And that, I have to say, is what excites me about eating disorder work, that I kind of see it Mm -hmm. on a good day as sort of the royal road into my patient's psychological struggle. If you follow them, and it, it also, as you follow the patient, you can empower them to think creatively and be really, really curious about how their eating disorder has saved them, services them, and gets in the way and punishes them and hurts them. Yeah. Well, so you said a lot in here and I'm glad that you said all of it coming in from different angles, especially because everybody's eating disorder functions for them on an individual level. It's not going to be the same as the next person. Mm -hmm. And that at times it might be, you know, this is a super simplistic way to conceptualize this, but at times might be numbing and might at times might be punishing. Could you talk to that just for a little bit more. I know that it it doesn't quite make that much sense when somebody says, oh, it's my fault and I have to punish myself. But how does that work? If somebody says, again, not like a conscious process, but they're telling themselves that this is their fault and that sort of thought process and then having to punish themselves, how does that actually come full circle? Like what is the purpose of the quote self-harm? Is my question making any sense? It makes complete sense and it's it's complicated. And I want to say it in a user-friendly way. Let's say for Allison to keep it kind of person-specific. And I like what you said that everyone's so unique and the eating disorder is so unique. And it's really important. It's not a one-size-fits-all way of thinking. What's the specificity for that person around their disordered eating or their, you know, you could call it self-harm or behavior or self-negating behavior. For Allison, it might be, I kind of deserve punishment. So there's some way in which being six years old and being sexually abused, she almost imprinted this idea that she was bad. She almost absorbed the sense of violation that became part of her inner template, her inner landscape. She didn't have a lot of other ways of thinking about it because it was so solitary and it was so early in development. People in psychoanalysis talk about identificatory processes, you know, identification with the aggressor. It's it's a mm-hmm. little complex, but sort of, I'm sort of linked with that person because I sort of maybe need the attachment, but I'm also bad by proxy. As my client, one of my clients, the one I mentioned earlier, who's a college student said, I was bad by proxy. Her words, actually. Wow. Um, which That's is pretty sophisticated. <laughs> pretty, pretty sophisticated. Because she agreed to, you know, engage with his sexual play with her cousin. Of course, there was a five, four, five year age difference, but she feels bad because she, quote unquote, went along with it. And a lot of even my client, the Allison, somehow, could you imagine a six-year-old feeling like they have the efficacy to say no to a 35-year-old man? She feels like 
she should have done something different. And I've been working with her, speaking of trauma and the body, that she was in a state of freeze in fright, that she was, she could not move. And that idea of being frozen in fright is some body state that she lives out now as a grown-up, but she did not have language. She was in a state of shock. She was in a state of immobilization. And people who study body work and trauma work know that this is a very kind of mammalian brain survival mechanism. There's the fright, Mm -hmm. flight, and freeze, and you don't move. And you're in shock. Could you imagine? I would be in shock. You wouldn't move. If I don't move a muscle, this might stop. This might go away. It's almost like kind of magical thinking. And so sometimes the healing work is to help the patient feel efficacious in their body that they can almost revive a sense of protest. So the eating disorder, interestingly enough, some people think of it as it can be both self-soothing, self-regulating, but also kind of protest. Like, this is my body. This is my self-delineation. Bug off. I'll do with my body what I want. There's a semblance of autonomy and self-assertion and control. But you and I Mm -hmm. know, Rahel, that this is kind of paradoxical because the thing that makes you feel like you're kind of in control in the end sometimes becomes habituated and feels like the eating disorder has hijacked your capacity to make up your own mind and takes on a life of its own. And that's absolutely what we're trying to help people figure out. But even just to, just to go back for a second, because I want to make sure that I understand this piece of the self-punishment that if this person sort of understands the world through the perspective that they're bad and this happened to them again, this super reductionist way of looking at this, this happened to them because they're bad. Then I wonder if it's a way of sort of not being okay, but negotiating life events that are completely incapable of being figured out in their brain. And that if it makes sense, or if we're of the assumption that I'm bad, then it sort of makes sense that this thing happened to me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to conceptualize anything that happened. So almost in an organizing, again, backwards um, and illogical way, but almost trying to organize that why this has happened and then carrying out that narrative for the rest of their life or until they shed more light and begin the healing process in terms of treating themselves as it aligns with this perspective of, quote, I'm bad. Oh, I love the way you frame that. And I don't think any of this is reductionistic. Sometimes we have to like... break it down in its simplest components. And again, always, I think for the listeners, always to say how specific and how unique everyone is and their story. Mm -hmm. So I would never assume any of this. It's only in the inquiry, the close inquiry and the patient telling me their story, do we map a narrative that is specific to them? So I do want to highlight that. But I, I like what, I love the word you used negotiation. I love that word that trying to make sense of like a nonsensical, you said you can't order it in your brain. It doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense. It doesn't make sense that a grown-up that you trusted would have betrayed your body and hijacked your sense of bounded self and autonomy and safety and intruded. It makes no sense whatsoever. You could think of an eating disorder. I mean, this is where it's like endlessly complex, can be a way to almost have a bounded self. I can take food in and I can throw it up. I can restrict it or I can hoard it. I can have control. And I would say this is sort of not conscious and intentional behavior. It's almost what we could call, I'm not sure what what words we could use, but 
I like your word negotiation, that it's some attempt to resolve an unresolvable bind. Mm-hmm. I like that, that kind of language. It's like a, it's like a bind. There's no, it's a nonsensical situation. The person's trying to negotiate their way out of. So mm-hmm. trying to bring a semblance of control over your body, it, it makes utter sense to me. And I think if the person is understood, they feel less shame ridden, they feel less bad. And then maybe in dialogue, we can catalyze or activate motivation to change and to bring other care that maybe food in the body could feel nourishing. But even the act of eating is a biologic event. So Allison doesn't like, I think, and this is really painful to say, that the act of eating almost evokes the somatic memory of some of the sexual acts that were perpetrated on her, which is just really gut-wrenching to link the two. And we barely can touch on it, but it's right there in the content in our work. So swallowing is almost an evocation of the, the literal trauma. So that is very dangerous for her. And I'm just like so heartbroken. So how am I going to quote unquote convince her to eat as a good eating disorder mm-hmm. therapist when it actually revives the somatic memory of the yeah, trauma? Yeah, it's almost like you're caught in between a rock and a hard place. But also then I know we've alluded to this a few times in our conversation, but perhaps to sort of talk about it in a little bit more direct way of okay, so now what? This person understands that they have a history of trauma, whether it's a long history, a shorter history, earlier, later, doesn't matter. And they have this eating disorder and maybe they can try to understand a little bit more conceptually of how they're connected. What does the process of healing actually look like? And I do understand that this is, of course, you know, just the caveat that everyone is an individual. It's going to look different for each person. But what are some of the major ideas that we like to look out for uh, if we're if we're working, you know, assuming we're both working the same way, you and I are both, you know, analytically minded. We're not necessarily talking about EMDR or any of the other alphabets that are out there. So what does it actually look like in this process of healing? I think you already said something as you were opening up that question about in the dialogue with the patient. And and I would like to say it could be in a self-help group. It could be an eating disorder, self-help group, a therapy group, some other model, even talking to a friend or a family member. And, And certainly I'm a fan of getting professional help if you have an active eating disorder, nutritionist or therapist. <laughs> no personal bias there whatsoever. <laughs> None whatsoever. Um, I mean, what I would say is it's actually hard to do alone. Maybe that's what I would like to say. This, you know, <laughs> But to have their story start to make sense. And we were talking earlier, yes. Rahel, about the idea of a coherent narrative. Like mm-hmm. I have to sometimes actually soothe myself when I'm worried for Allison that there's something about her telling her story to me for the very first first time after 30 years that has meaning and at times telling her story and making sense of where the eating disorder fits in can be over arousing and upsetting but i try to track and this is how the healing process looks like we dialogue giving her control she sets the tempo she sets the rhythm what's happening in her body right now when does she need to stop we were i was asking an exploratory question recently and she said i have to stop she got up out of her chair, walked to my window, opened the window and breathed and looked out the window. Because I've been informed by some of the somatic trainings and sensory motor psychotherapy, I praised her for down-regulating her nervous system. That is actually a resource and a tool that she has, which is nature, breath, movement, 
being able to stop the action when she's flooded. This is highly important for her to develop the tools. And in therapy, that is part of the healing. The healing might be to understand when the eating disorder began, what was its purpose? How does it still linger? How does it have a purpose right now in real time in contemporary life? But also, how is she, the patient? And I've had some male patients too, by the way, and a transgender patient. How do they heal what do they need to do to downregulate and manage their body, particularly if there's explicit trauma? And to unlink the food, to delink, that is just the go-to, the automaticity. That's the other thing. We're trying to slow down the action and think two minds together. Huh. When A, when I feel A, I have an impulse to do B. And we start to like want to pull that apart, slow down the automatic habitual behavior of. I eat and I throw up and I don't even think about it. It's dissociative behavior. And so Mm -hmm. once you start to be aware, oh, I do that, hmm, maybe I can have an alternative coping strategy to intervene to wedge between the automatic response. Yeah. And that's, you know, of course, where having a second party or a therapist involved can A, point it out and also allow the person to create more space. And then you can stick in some grounding techniques, whether it's, um, you know, from somatic therapies in terms of your actual body, engaging in specific grounding techniques that there's like a couple out there that are really good, or just breathing, fresh air, et cetera, and hitting that pause button before we jump to food or the lack thereof or purging or movement or whatever it is. So it's slowing it way down and then being able to insert different pieces, yeah. uh, creating a new a new narrative. Or a new experience to be able to regulate one's body. And then that becomes mm-hmm. the new narrative that one has capacity and one has autonomy and agency, that one is just not a victim of their circumstance, that they have to just, their body's just being, you know, on the ride of some process where there's no kind of agency, there's no thinking mind to help the person. So a lot of this you're saying it has to be experiential. It's not just about putting some pieces together logically, which I'm sure is very helpful. There has to be a piece of this where we're slowing the body down, where we're grounding our bodies, where we're digesting this information, where we're actually experiencing it because without it, then the body is, is on its own agenda. Yeah. I like that. The body's on its own agenda. So, and I like the word digest. So it's two people in a compassionate other, if it's a friend or self-help or a therapist who's with compassion, digesting and holding the story and feeling along with a patient, they're not alone. Someone is empathically tracking and feeling with them. So it kind of rehabilitates emotion. Actually, we haven't talked about that yet, but it it rehabilitates a sense that there is a a shared emotional field because trauma invariably happens often in a cocoon in isolation. So Allison was abused by someone who used no words and that person was no longer available as a protective grown-up and there was no other protective grown-up or person in her life to help her. So we are reinstalling or reinvigorating a sense that you can be cared about in the room together as we remember these events and talk about them. What would you say if somebody has the capacity to share their story in bits or in its entirety, but it's pretty obvious that they're quite disconnected from it emotionally. So they can just, they have no problem talking about it. What would you say in that case? That's really a good question. 
this is where I think clinical chops and intuition really matter because sometimes you have to <laughs> respect people's need to be um, self-protective or have their mm-hmm. protective defenses intact. And I made the mistake of sometimes like, you know, being a bit of a bull in a China shop and I get school, <laughs> I get schooled by my clients. Like one of my clients who's really hilarious, like, well, way to go, Heather, way to bring me down asking about the purging just like that. And we laugh together <laughs> and I'm like, yep guilty as charged, but I might with someone where there's some safety and there's already rapport, I might say, I could do a couple things. I could say, what are you feeling right now in your body? Do you notice the sensation? Or I notice this is maybe you're really in your head and maybe you need to be in your head. Like we could maybe talk about observing that together. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I feel there's a little traction, I might be able to bring the patient back into an embodied felt sense or emotional connection with their bodily self-experience, their body and self-experience, one and the same. Or maybe I just let them be, quote unquote, in a kind of self-protected cocoon, a little bit of a defended cocoon. I think of a college kid I worked with briefly this summer who was, you know, in between her junior and senior year, had a kind of fairly manageable anorexia was motivated for a little change, didn't really want to get too deep. I wasn't going to, she talked about it really well. She was really in her mind. She goes to Ivy League college, really smart. I did not need to say, hey, you're really in your head. <laughs> you got your defenses mm-hmm. intact. Like I'm, I'm respecting <laughs> that she was coming to me and she was prepared to do a little teeny weeny piece of work. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's also important that you start with where the patient's at. Yeah, that's definitely important and not forcing somebody to go further than their body or their mind is capable in the moment. I'm curious about, you know, we talked about the eating disorders function in terms of the hyperarousal, hypoarousal, how it could be numbing, how it could be any sort of function. And we mostly talked about healing from trauma as it from the perspective of this is hyperarousing and let's bring you down. So grounding. Is there a way to think about it from the other perspective? It's more numbing or is that sort of the general way to think about it? Oh, no, I think that's terrific. I think it's both and and probably many variations along the continuum because, again, our note today is everyone's unique. Like Allison, for instance, and I think of another patient who, well, let me go with my other patient. I've written about her. I'll call her Deborah with her permission. She's great. She would say for sure it was about numbing. Are you kidding me, Heather? It was like delicate cutting. It served a purpose. It was sort of not to be in her body and in her mind and to float away. You know, in fact, we do know about the neurobiology of restriction, which is important for therapists to know about because we can do that psychoed with our patients that there is a neurochemical process that, you know, restricting makes you lightheaded and it can create a little bit of an endorphin high and a rush. And you can kind of float away on a little blissful cloud when you're starving and it can feel good. And it's a kind of transitory high. And I think I worked a lot with Deborah on that. And that that was like, that's hard to take away. It's sort of a little bit like a drug. Um, I mean, there's a complicated debate. Do we think of eating disorders as addiction? Although some people have used that model to help the patient feel less to blame, actually, that there's a process that gets activated that's catalytic. But Deborah would say for sure numbing was the case. Um, Allison, who I talked about a little while ago, it also eating a little bit or doing a very rigorous exercise will help her float away and not be in her mind and body. And that is the function is to kind of almost create a little bit of a dissociative, numbing, floating feeling. And again, it's adaptive. 
and to help the patient understand that. But we don't want to live in that space all the time because A, it's dangerous and B, you don't float through life. You need to kind of, we want to make healing happen, right? So yeah. And what about, I was just thinking about this, we're, t- we're talking mostly in terms of, I guess, more conventionally accepted trauma. I don't even know how to say it, but just sort of like sexual traumas and, and isolated instances. What about somebody who, and again, using the word trauma loosely, has experienced more of the relational trauma. So neglectful parent or narcissistic parent or something like that, where this has been throughout their development that they didn't necessarily have what they need and their response is pretty trauma-like. The narrative that we're talking about is not just sort of talking through an experience. This is a relationship over the course of their entire life. How would that differ if, if at all? Well, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I think you know, early psychoanalysts talked about this idea of cumulative trauma, the small t trauma that's cumulative. So it's not one misattunement. I'm a parent. No one's perfect, right? <laughs> but it, it's yeah. repeated kind of misattunement or neglect or the child's need to patholy, pathologically accommodate to a parent who's maybe more narcissistic. Or there's a lot of shaming and management around food and bodies and judgments. And it can be a mix of things. And it doesn't mean the parent's bad. I'm really not a fan of parent blaming. But how is it different? Well, maybe um, I think you still do the kind of close inquiry that we're talking about. And, you know, so maybe you're not working so much on like hyper and hypo arousal in a intense way, but you're working on more self-efficacy, self-assertion, self-esteem, communicating your needs. So the patient I saw over the summer, a college kid asserting herself with her family when Mm -hmm. she goes home, don't talk about my food, don't talk about eating. How was she going to communicate assertively with her mother and her aunt who have a lot of body focus because she's trying to be more bounded and more separate and take care of herself. Mm -hmm. Um, And she doesn't want to be intruded on or judged. And, you know, I'm thinking of another patient who I worked with years ago where the cumulative relational trauma was a mother who was probably quite traumatized herself and extremely emotionally neglectful. And anytime this young person needed anything, the mother seemed, at least in the patient's memory had some way of saying, you're too much, you need too much, you're too needy, you're too difficult. And the patient really internalized that belief. They were too needy, they were too much. And what she learned was to be very, again, a kind of move to a solitary solitary resourcing that I'll restrict, I'll self-manage, I won't need other people. And so in our treatment, it was all about trying to get her to feel entitled and worthy of needing other people, including me, including a boyfriend that she was dating, including friendships. Could she ask for something? Was she allowed to have a need? Was she allowed to have a feeling? Was she allowed to share it? This was a whole lot of unpacking. Oh my God. Yeah. And also thinking about uh, some of the parallels in terms of boundary setting or assertiveness. Um, I'm thinking about one of my clients specific experience when trying to assert herself, not even with family members, but just in general, picking up the phone and taking care of something that she needed to, or speaking up to her boss, things like that, where she would I'm not sure metaphorically or not sort of freeze up and not be able to sort of make sense of what's going on and assert herself, which if you think about fight or flight, that's 
exactly what's going on, maybe in a different capacity, but they're not able to think logically. And so unpacking one experience of difficulty asserting themselves might actually look exactly the same as, uh, you know, something that we were talking about before about traumatic responses. I completely agree. And I think that's where actually understanding how the body responds to overwhelm, states of overwhelm is Mm -hmm. really, really helpful. And then that's very easy to explain. You got really hyper aroused or overwhelmed and you shut down or the anxiety flooded the came in, the adrenaline flooded the gates and you couldn't think that thinking stops. I think to say that to people, they feel like, oh, I make sense to myself. I'm not crazy. So you work on, you could work on relaxation techniques, but breaking down that event. And let me share an idea from psychoanalysis that I love um, that comes out of Please. self-psychology, the idea of a model scene that you know patients will often say, well, you could say that that's a little iconic, one of my clients used the phrase, an iconic moment, which I liked, or a snapshot, that that the calling the boss to be assertive, say they wanted a vacation day, extra vacation days, and they freeze, that's paradigmatic of probably something that was very hard or got organized in their family of origin. So if the patient shares that with you, you, the analyst, can say, does this remind you of anything? Or or you could say, as Mm -hmm. the analyst, it reminds me of the story. Then when you asked your mother, can I go on spring break with my friend? And you were shut down or humiliated for that and make the linkages. So the patient, again, starts to make sense to themselves and can use their mind and and regulate their body. Yeah. And I love just going back to what you were saying earlier, how if you can take a few steps back and actually look at the eating disorder as a, a beautiful puzzle that just has to be put together. And if you can look at every piece of your life, of your interactions, of symptoms, thoughts, feelings, sensations, and use it as clues then we can put so many of the pieces together. Sometimes the thing that allows us to put them together is our body and our memories. This doesn't quite make sense yet, but it's just what's coming to mind. It's what I'm remembering. It's what my body is remembering. And then we can put all of those puzzle pieces together when it didn't originally make sense and eventually make sense of it because all of this is just clues. I love that. I love the your language about the puzzle and the clues and what a wonderful thing to be able to say to someone that this is the process together. Yeah. I have one more question. It's not entirely related to this, but I, I know that so many people use it in terms of the general umbrella of trauma, talking about intergenerational trauma. And I, I wonder if, I don't even know if I have a specific question just yet on it, but I wonder if we can talk a bit about it in terms of how that works, what it looks like, how it affects the next generation, and maybe even starting off with like, what is it? Oh, it's a great question. I'm very interested in this. I mean, basically, a number of clinicians worldwide have been talking about, you know, the idea of intergenerational transmission of trauma. Somehow there's a traumatic story from a prior generation. Some of the research came out of survivors of the Holocaust. And some very famous people said it takes three generations to remember that kind of trauma because the brain shuts down. So you have people in Israel not talking about the Holocaust who are in psych units because it can't be spoken. It's too dangerous. It's too close. It's too horrific. It's unmetabolizable. And so somehow those secrets get passed on in the idea that the narrative doesn't have coherence, 
that affects and, and stories don't have linkage. So somehow it gets passed along through kind of attachment dynamics from mother, father, child, then to grandchild. So secrets, sort of unnamed horrors. And I've seen um, intergenerational transmission of, of sexual trauma and eating disorders, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a big two, one. Two of the patients I've talked about today, Allison and someone else I haven't mentioned, both had aunts who were probably sexually abused by the male perpetrator who both had eating disorders. Wow. And it was right there in plain sight. But the mothers of these two women couldn't see the thing that had happened to their siblings and then couldn't see and tolerate and metabolize what was probably happening under their nose to their own daughters. Even though the clues, the eating disorder and some of those somatic markers were there because something was unthinkable in the family. Something was too horrible to process and unnamed and unspoken, but felt bodily. Mm -hmm. So then I'm thinking about the rest of our conversation. If we're not talking about content or memory, uh, if it's unspoken, then a lot of this is what the body is holding on to and potentially what the next generation or the following generation is holding on to. And then it would become much more of an experiential or a somatic experience of learning to regulate emotion or affect and learning to self-soothe and all of these things that might not make so much sense because it wasn't direct trauma, if you will. And thinking about breaking the transmission of intergenerational trauma potentially is on that avenue. Yeah. I think a lot of us now are thinking to talk with our patients multi-generationally. In social school, they were really cutting edge. The family therapist back in the day, the idea of the genogram, right? The, Mm -hmm. The levels. So partly it might be to map with a patient their multi-generational story and pockets of trauma that maybe never got spoken. That can be quite illuminating and interesting. So there's there's history, there's culture, there's class, there's race. Speaking of, actually, I wrote down in my notes here, food scarcity. I was thinking about a family mm. where there was starving. There was in, we're living in a time of such great tumult between war and, and poverty and food scarcity. Like, how does that get communicated if a grandparents came from, I'm making this up, Eastern Europe and at some point starved. And so food became this like powerful way to both show love and communicate love and communicate resources. But I don't know, where does that kind of, how do those stories get sort of felt, but not spoken, communicated? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big one. Maybe we, I've had clients where there's what either not typically food scarcity, but maybe a lot of rules around food. But we could have patients that there's food scarcity, so they hoard food or they eat super fast whenever they have food. So it's very complicated. That's kind of more the context of one's lived history. I'm thinking about how it ties in so, this is so common, how anybody with a history of disordered eating or an eating disorder, for the most part, and this is a generalization, and a majority of people that have family members that have some form of disordered eating in the family and they grew up with it. So food rules or or body image, whatever it might be, the rigidity even, and living with that, potentially living with that after they've come to an awareness of their relationship with food and that there are eating disorders or at least disordered eating all around them. And how has that affected them? How has that made them feel about food? Not just in a 
social context, but also in this sort of intergenerational context. That's great. That was well knitted together because that's very, very true. Yeah. Can I write a paper with you soon? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, All right. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. There's so much more information out there from your work, your writing. It's absolutely incredible. So I appreciate your time and your work. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation to have with you. Yeah. Before I let you go, can you let our listeners know where they can find you or maybe some of your work? Well, I have a website, Heather Ferguson, LCSW at Outlook.com. And there are some of my papers there and you can email me and I would be very happy to send them along. Amazing. Thank you so much again. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.